Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. Join us now as Pastor Keith shares today's message. Well, good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Great to see you. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, we use them every week. Uh, I want you to find the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Gospel of Luke chapter 4. It's in the New Testament, third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. Uh, beginning in verse 14, put your finger there and hold it for just a second. Uh, if you got your hard copy or digital copy, either one works. And uh, sometimes people ask me, what, what tra- English translation are you teaching from? Uh, I typically, my default setting is the Holman Christian Standard Translation, uh, HCSB. My daughter says that stands for Hardcore Southern Baptist. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that that's what that means, but uh, uh, so if that'll help. Some of you got the apps, uh, version on your tablet or your phone, and you know, you have a lot of translations. You can quickly select that one if you want to follow along um, that way. Well, today we're going to find out who gets in and who does not. So here we go. Beginning in verse 14, this is God's Word. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being acclaimed by everyone. He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. As usual, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him and un. Rolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. So all we've heard that that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. So he also said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged 
They got up, drove him out of town, brought him to the edge of the hill that was their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went his own way. So, here's the setting. The Lord Jesus, early in His public ministry, after His first visit to Jerusalem to observe the Passover festival, after a week there and significant things uh, happening in his life in ministry then, they left, he and his disciples, and departed to take the journey north out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, through Samaria, back north to the northernmost region of Palestine, which was Galilee, his home region. He stopped and spent two days in the village of Sychar in Samaria, uh, presenting uh, the, the good news to the Samaritan woman at the well, and then all of the people of the town spent two days with them. Then they proceeded on to Galilee. Uh, last week we discovered that they went into the village of Cana, where earlier he had, all, he had performed his first miracle, the first sign that he was the Messiah. God come to earth in the flesh, the Savior to make a way where he turned water into wine. Well, when he did that, word spread like... It went, he, his story went viral all over Galilee uh, about his person, about his teachings, about his miracle-working uh, power. He, uh, people were talking about him, and he was traveling once they got back to Galilee from village to village to village, town to town, city to city. And on the Sabbath days, he, uh, as a rabbi, was he was recognized as a rabbi, was teaching in their synagogues. Now, uh, some of you will know that the synagogue in first century Judaism in what they call the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament writings and the 400-year period of the beginning of the writings of the New Testament when Jesus came, that, that Judaism developed a decentralized plant pattern of worship uh, in addition to temple worship in Jerusalem. Each community would have a synagogue, a house of worship for the Jewish people. And so Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and uh, he was popular. People were praising all that he was saying and doing. Uh, He was very, very popular. Well, the day came that he arrived in his hometown, Nazareth, where he was brought up. See, from the time he was a young preschooler, probably two years old maybe, as early as two years old, his family had traveled back and moved back to Nazareth. From two years old till the age 30, that was his hometown. Now, he later moved his base of living and operations to Capernaum, but he, that, he, was the home, he was the hometown boy made good as rabbi. And uh, they, most of them knew Jesus personally. Uh, most, uh, almost everybody knew of him. They knew of his family and they knew his mama and them, you know, Mary and Joseph. Joseph was probably dead at this time, best we can tell. And so the, the day came, the first Sabbath back in town, as was his habit. By the way, he always had the spiritual habit of gathering with the people of God to worship the God of the Bible. Uh, good thing to do. And so he came to Sabbath. Evidently, he was expected to be there on that day. And so, uh, this is the earliest historical account that, that we have of uh, synagogue worship, a synagogue worship service. And... Uh, Best we can tell, uh, the, the order of worship in the synagogue, would it would begin with prayers and readings from the Psalms. It would continue with the re- recitation of what we know as the Shema, 
uh, out of Deuteronomy, then uh, the reading of eight, the 18 benedictions, then, then there would be a reading from the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament uh, that would then be paraphrased into Aramaic. Uh, then someone would read from the Old Testament prophets or the prophets. It would be paraphrased into Aramaic because uh, even in that day in that region, most people spoke Aramaic and even they were not as familiar with the Hebrew language as they would like to be. Following the reading from the prophets, someone would teach or, or, or give a sermon on the readings of the day. There, there typically were no priests in the synagogues, and so the leader or the president of the synagogue uh, would commonly appoint or ask any man uh, that he considered competent to do the readings and even bring the sermon for the day. Well, Jesus was expected to do so. Then after the reading and the sermon, uh, there would be um, uh, the priestly blessing or a closing prayer and they would depart. Well, on this day, Jesus came and uh, He was expected by all the people. I imagine the place was jammed uh, to, to hear Him on that day. He, was, he stood to do the, old, the uh, reading from the prophets. And so the attendant pulled the scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Now remember the, the scriptures were, were contained and written on scrolls in that day. They did not have bound books as we know them today. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where he wanted to read, and he was reading from, here you go, Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. And he read, in beginning in verse 18, these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the, the year of the Lord's favor. Now, everyone in the room knew this passage. Everyone in that synagogue knew of this passage. This passage. This was a prophecy from the, the prophet Isaiah of, of that mysterious figure, the Messiah, or it was known as one of the, quote, servant of the Lord passages. This, again, this mysterious figure in the, the prophets uh, that was to come uh, and, and usher in the reign and the rule of God on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom of God on earth, to put everything. Uh, right. It's one of the passages describing the actions and the mission of the Messiah, that long-awaited one. Now, this prophecy was written somewhere between 750 and 800 years before the birth of Christ. So the Jewish people, the people in this, the, the Jewish people had been reading this passage literally for hundreds of years. They had been praying for the fulfillment of this prophecy for hundreds of years. They all knew it. They all knew it. And they were looking for the Messiah, uh, this, this servant uh, of the Lord, to come and set them free and restore Israel uh, to, to the kingdom uh, Glory, the glory of the kingdom days of King David and Solomon. They had big posters on the wall that said, Make America, I mean, make Israel great again. I mean, that's what they were looking for. That's the kind of leader they were looking for. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to be and do. 
Now remember the Jews of this day were not a free people. They were an occupied people. They, they, believed, they believed themselves to be the poor in this passage. They believed themselves to be the captives. They believed themselves to be the ones who were in a dark dungeon, blinded in captivity, hidden from sunlight. They believed that they were the ones who, uh, they were the oppressed who needed to be uh, set free because they were under the cruel rule of the Romans, the Roman Empire. They were they had no self-rule. They, they were taxed beyond their ability. They were hassled and harassed by the uh, Romans, the Roman soldiers. They were the ones who were oppressed by the Romans. That's the way they saw themselves. And they were very, very ready. They were praying for, looking for the favorable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And so that's what Jesus uh, proclaimed. Now, this, is a, this, this phrase... Uh, the, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the favorable year of the Lord, depending on what translation you have. This is a reference back to the, uh, to the ancient Jewish cultural and, and, and biblical practice of the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was, 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 a, a, uh, was every 50 years in ancient Judaism, uh, everything was it was, a, it was a wonderful reset button. And where... All debts were forgiven. All property reverted back to its original owners. All the slaves were set free. Indentured servants were set free. Uh, the, even the land was not cultivated for a year. It was given a, a year rest. The people got to rest and celebrate for a year. The land, the beasts of burden. It, it, was a, it was the picture of God setting everything right the way He wanted it to be. And so in this prophecy of Isaiah referring to the year of the Lord's favor, they saw it in this servant of the Lord passage as the prophecy of the time when, kind of like the year of Jubilee, God Himself and His servant would come and set everything right. Now we still look for that day, and it's coming, the Scriptures say. That's another sermon for another time. But this is what they were looking for, and they, they were excited about it. It symbolized the rule and the reign of God on earth Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Putting everything right. And they were saying, the guys, the Jews were saying in the synagogue, and, and we're, put it right for us. We're the good people. We're the ones under the oppression of all those bad people, those sexually immoral, hedonistic, polytheistic, imperialistic Romans, a bunch of pagan Romans. We're the good people. He's going to come save us. We're the religious people. We're the ones attending worship services in the synagogue each week. We're the ones reading the Scriptures and trying to obey them. We're the ones giving sacrifices at the temple at the Jewish festivals. We're the ones that God's chosen as His special people, right? I mean, we're the descendants of Father Abraham. We're the ones who are working hard to keep all of the law of the Lord. So when the Messiah comes, He's coming for us. That's what they were looking for. Well, then Jesus did something remarkable, shocking to them. He finished reading. He rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and sat down to give his sermon. And that was the pattern. The, uh, the teachers would stand to read the Word of God. They would sit down to teach. He sat. They know he's getting ready now to give the commentary on the reading or give the lesson or give the, the explanation or the sermon. And here's the summary. Here's what he said. Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. What he was saying to them was, I'm him. 
I'm the Messiah. I am this, I am the fulfillment of the servant of the Lord passages. I am the, the I am God Himself come to earth. I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that is prophesied here. And uh, they were, he said, I have begun, the era of the salvation of God begins today. Now, not just the year of the Lord, it was meant the era, the time when now it is possible for human beings to be forgiven, to be accepted, to be renewed, to be adopted into the kingdom of heaven, the family of God. The time of salvation has begun. Now, it continues to this day. It started then, it continues uh, to this this day. And they were excited. They were ready for this uh, to happen. They were happy that he was announcing the fulfillment of this prophecy, yet they, all of, they were a little confused. They began to say to themselves, but now isn't this Jesus? Isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> I mean, that some of them, it's highly likely some of them were sitting in chairs that Jesus himself constructed in the carpenter shop. Didn't we buy these seats from him? Some of them, Jeff, worked in the preschool. Some said, I changed his diapers in the synagogue nursery. What? what? Now, what? Well, Jesus understood what was going on in their minds. He knew what's in the heart of man. You and I, don't. we don't know. We think we do. I know why they did that. No, you don't. God does. But, but he knew. He knew they were beginning to doubt and that they were starting the process to reject Him. And He said, no doubt, here's what's going on in your mind. You're going to quote to me this proverb. There was an ancient proverb. Okay, physician, then prove it. Heal yourself. Why don't you go ahead and do for us in your hometown some of the miracles that you've already done in Capernaum that we've, we've heard about. And let's give us some evidence here that, that this is true. They were rejecting Him as Messiah. And so Jesus knew they did not understand the kingdom of heaven. And He knew, watch this, they were not the kind of people God saves. And so He continued with His sermon. And He told them two stories they were very familiar with. One was out of the book of First Kings, way back over in the Old Testament, one of the historical books, 1 Kings chapter 17, about the prophet, the great prophet Elijah. And he said, now you remember in Elijah's day, there was a great famine, lasted three and a half years, no food in the land, people were starving. It was part of God's judgment on the wicked, sinful, rebellious king Ahab. But, but everybody was suffering from it. He said, no doubt there were many, many Jewish widows who didn't have enough food. But God did not provide for them. He sent Elijah to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. He said he sent her to a he sent him to a Gentile. She didn't live in Judea or Israel. She lived up on the coast in Phoenicia. And and through Elijah, God provided to this widow, this one that the members of the synagogue considered to be outsiders with no hope for the family of God, to her. And He sustained her with enough oil and flour for her and her young son to get through. He said she was poor, she was a Gentile, not a descendant of Abraham, and yet Jesus was saying, this is the kind of person the kingdom of heaven comes to. This is the kind of person God saves. This is the kind of person who gets in. 
And then he told them a second story they were very familiar with. And it came out of the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. And it involved uh, the second of the great prophets, the one who was the protege of Elijah, Elisha. And he said, you'll remember in the days of Elisha, there were many people in Israel who had leprosy, serious skin diseases, and yet God did not heal them. He, through his prophet Elisha, arranged for the healing of a man named Naaman, or some pronounce it uh, Naaman. He was a uh, Assyrian, Aramean. He was a general. He was a wealthy man. He was a powerful man. He was a military leader and uh, who had leprosy. And God arranged through the prophet Elisha that Naaman would receive his healing. He was a Gentile. He was not even a God-fearer. He said, but he's the kind of person the kingdom of God comes to. He's the kind of person who gets in. Not you guys here. And when they heard this, they were furious. Now, this is a good way to break up church. And it did. They came, you know, if you heard the old saying, they came out of their seats. They really did. They literally did. They rushed him. They were furious. They kicked into mob mentality, grabbed him up, rushed him out the door to, if you've only been to that region, you know, there's a, there, you, you can go to Nazareth and you can be thrown off a cliff at Nazareth. And they rushed. They were going to assassinate him. It went from, oh, isn't it good to have the hometown boy here, to in seconds, let's kill him. Why? It's because Jesus announced to the members of the synagogue at Nazareth that He was the Messiah coming to usher in the kingdom of heaven, God's salvation, but they did not accept Him. They rejected Him. So He told them that God's kingdom comes for people who are not like them, but instead people who are like the Gentiles, the Gentile widow and the Gentile uh, uh, Aramean uh, general. Here's what He said. God's salvation only comes to the right kind of people. You're not the right kind of people. So, Pastor, who are the right kind of people? Well, now there's the question, isn't it? And we're going to answer that. And now's the time to get the right answer. You can't afford to get the wrong answer here. Who gets in the kingdom of God? Who belongs to the kingdom of heaven? Who can be saved? Who can have eternal life? Here's the answer. Poor people. Spiritually poor people. Jesus said that He offers His salvation, He offers His forgiveness, He offers adoption into His family, entrance into His kingdom, the gift of abundant and eternal life, only to spiritually poor people. Spiritually poor people. Now, here, let's, let's, let's explain that. Look at verse 18 again. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he said, The Lord has appointed me to preach the good news to who? The poor. The poor. And he means the spirit. You say, well, does he mean the actual, financially, physically, materially poor? Well, not exactly. We'll get back to that in a moment. He's dealing metaphorically primarily, not completely, because he did minister to the physical poor and, 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 and sick. And in front, he did, but it was much more than that. 
He's saying here primarily that the Messiah brings the message of salvation to those who are spiritually poor and know it. Now, we're all spiritually poor, just some of us will admit it and others don't. Uh, he, he brings it to those who know it, who admit it to God and who admit it to themselves. Here, and then he describes them. Freedom to the captives, restore sight to the blind, set free the oppressed. This is a commentary on who, who, are, who the poor are and what they are like. Spiritually poor people know that they're captives. They know that they are prisoners of war. We're in a war here, a spiritual war for the hearts and lives and souls and eternities of men and women and boys and girls. Uh, spiritually poor people know that they have been captured in the war by sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil has captured them, and they are slaves to their sin. Spiritually poor people uh, do not minimize their sin and call it mistakes. Spiritual people don't minimize their sin and say, well, nobody's perfect. Spiritually poor people don't ignore their sin and say, well, I have no need to ask God for forgiveness. Spiritually poor people know and admit that they're prisoners of war. They, they know that they do not control their sins, but their sins are in control of them. Spiritually poor people admit that they can resist anything uh, but temptation and they need outside help. They're their pride, their judgmentalism, their envy, their jealousy, their hate, their uh, sexual immorality, their lust, their gluttony, go on and on and on. They know I am in prison. I am a slave to my sin. Who will set me free from, my, from this body of death, as the Apostle Paul said. Spiritually poor people know that also that they're blind. They need their sight restored. They easily say, come to the Lord and say, I once was blind. I want to see. I can't see. I can't see. I can't understand spiritual truth. I'm tossed to and fro by every kind of crazy belief that comes down the pike under this, all this new age stuff. And I run to this teacher and to that teacher. And I'm reading all these, all these books and going to this and that. But I'm never learning. Always re, always. Um, uh, always seeking but never getting it. I, I need help. I got blinders on my eyes and they know it. And they admit it. Spiritually poor people know that they are oppressed, that they're under the influence of the world thought and value system. They don't ignore it. That they're oppressed by the principalities and powers of the air. Spiritually poor people believe that they have nothing in and of themselves that will commend them to God. That's called spiritual poverty. That there's nothing in me that would make God want to for accept me. There's nothing in me that would, would put God in my... God is not in my debt. He does not owe me anything. I am completely dependent upon the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God or I am sunk... They are like the tax collector that Jesus told us about who one day, uh, again, this, this, this tax collector who abused his own people, was a crooked businessman, was considered very sinful by his culture, yet he stood on the street corner one day, couldn't even bear to lift his eyes to heaven and just beat his chest and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's spiritually poor. That's spiritual poverty. And Jesus, this is what Jesus meant when he opened the Sermon on the Mount with these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. Got it? That's what he's saying right there. Spiritual poverty. Only poor people get in. Only poor people are saved. Spiritually poor people. But now the Jews in the synagogue at Nazareth that day, listening to Jesus, did not see themselves as spiritual paupers, as spiritually poor. I want to borrow a phrase from from one writer on this passage who said, they saw themselves as spiritually middle class. Now this is where I worry about you and me. In other words, they saw themselves as being a little bit deserving. Now they, they, they were aware of human sin. They wrestled with it all the time, but they thought they were a, a little bit, they kind of thought they were entitled. They said, hey, we're the hardworking spiritual middle class. We're the religious people. We're, we're, we bring something to God. We're Abraham's children. We're religious. We attend church. Uh, some of us for our entire lives, we know the Bible stories and read them. We are, we are moral. We are doing our best. We are working hard to uh, keep God's laws. So therefore, the Messiah is supposed to come to us. We have a claim on the Messiah to free us from the Romans, to make us better. Uh, so, so now, God, uh, we expect you, God, to keep your end of the deal and behave like we expect you to behave. You see, spiritually middle-class people rebel against God with their obedience. How's that possible, Pastor? Here's what I mean by that. Spiritually middle-class people work hard to obey God, but it's a rebellion. We, we rebel against God by obeying God in order to put God in our debt to try to make Him. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, so now you, you do like I want you to, like you, like I expect you to, God. So, Pastor, how can I know if I'm behaving like a spiritually middle-class person? You ready for this? You get mad at God when He doesn't act like you want Him to behave. One philosopher writing on this passage at this point said, Dang. Mm -hmm. You see, when Jesus declared that God's salvation, the kingdom of heaven, is only available, available to them who do not deserve it and know they don't deserve it and who throw themselves on the mercy and grace of Jesus, spiritually poor people like those Gentiles, the Jews in the synagogue got mad as the dickens at Jesus and tried to kill him. They got mad at him because why? Wait a minute, the Messiah is not behaving like I want him to behave. And they wanted to kill him. I'm mad at God. Some of you are mad at God because he didn't behave like you wanted him to behave. And if that's you, it's because you have misunderstood the gospel. You have misunderstood Jesus. You have misunderstood the kingdom of God. And, uh, and you're behaving spiritually middle class. You have been living right in your own eyes so that God would be in your debt and do what you want Him to do. And you're going to be overlooked. You're going to be bypassed. Well, spiritually middle class do not enter the kingdom of heaven. Only spiritually poor people who recognize our poverty only people who, who can really understand and sing the first line of the great hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. You think you bring something to God, but the, the only thing that you must bring to God, to Jesus, in order to be saved, the only thing that you must bring to, to uh, 
Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven is nothing. You bring nothing. If you have something, you're left out. Nothing. It's, it's what we've called in the past, it's the Jesus plus nothing. I either, I, G, I mean, it's either Jesus or I'm sunk. Not Jesus plus my stuff. You, you should like me a little better. You owe me, God. I'm kind of, you know, I'm... I'm no, nope. only spiritually poor people can be saved. But now there's another aspect here that I want to mention. Um, the kingdom of heaven does seem to come more easily to those who are actually poor. And so, Pastor, are you saying, as some have said, are you saying that people who are actually poor are automatically given a place in the kingdom of heaven in God's family? No, I'm not saying that. Are you saying that people who are wealthy, people who are rich, actually rich, are, are automatically excluded from the kingdom of heaven? No, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But for 2,000 years, just, just history tells us that those who have been pushed to the edges of society, women pushed there by men, weak pushed there by the powerful, Pover, those poverty-stricken pushed by those who are, well, are just because of life circumstances. Life is hard and they just don't have much. People who are actually poor have had a much easier time understanding a Savior who became poor for their sake so that through His poverty, death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead, they might be made rich in the kingdom of heaven. They get a Savior like that quickly. They get it more easily. Jesus said it would be that way. He was speaking to His disciples one time in uh, Matthew chapter 19, and here's what He said, I assure you it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds you know, really intense right there, but that's a joke. That's Jewish humor. His disciples at that point went... <laughs> That's a good one, Lord. You see, ancient Jewish humor was humor by exaggeration. It's easier, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> see, Jesus understood what great teachers do, that if you can get someone laughing, they open their mouth to laugh, and then you cram the truth in it. And, and that's what he did, Bill, right there. And what did he mean by that? This is where, it's, it's because those of us who have all we need and more in this life, we tend to forget God. It's very easy for us to believe that we are self-sufficient. It is very easy for us to tend to think that, that these blessings that we have in our life is because of our own good looks and beauty and savvy and hard work. Well, if everybody just worked like me, it'd be, well, only problem of that's not true. We forget that's not what God said. God said it is, it is He who gives the ability to produce wealth. And those of you who are wealthy, which is most of us in this room, we are wealthy primarily because God arranged providentially for circumstances outside of your control to put you in a position for it to be a little easier for you to produce wealth than the other people on the planet. So why did He do that? I don't know, but he did. But rich people tend not to want to, because 
be like, you know, you'd just do like me, you'd have, you'd have what you need. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, no, not the case. We live, this, this is where I worry about me, and it's where I worry about you. We, our county has the second highest median income in the state of Georgia. Now, there are at least, we figured, at least 8,000 people in our county who live below the poverty level. But that leaves more than 100,000, way more than 100,000 who are not. And many of us are, have way, we have what we need and way more than we need. We are wealthy, which means not only are we wealthiest in the state of Georgia, then therefore we are one of the wealthiest communities in, on the planet. On the planet. And we have the greatest... We have a great barrier to overcome. We have to crawl over materialism to make sure that we recognize that we are poor in spirit. But we tend to think, hey, we're, um, we're good people. Uh, we're hardworking people. We're church-going people. We're moral people. You know, God's kind of lucky to have us on His team. And yet, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, See, when we're this way, we're kind of... Jesus is good for those people who need Him and when they need Him, and we kind of like Him. Well, that's called lukewarm. Jesus said this, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and yet you don't know, spiritually speaking, that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Down through history, it's been the, those who are actually poor that had a little bit easier time, generally speaking, of understanding Jesus and following Him. Those of us who have more, we better, we better focus on it. We better... Is it, say, are you saying there's anything wrong with wealth? You're not hearing me. No. No, 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 no. The only danger of wealth is that we can begin to think it's the deal. We don't need God. And we forget that we are spiritually wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked, and we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court to be saved. Only because only poor people are saved. So how you doing? I think we better take the time and get poor. Let's pray. Some of you for the very first time need to cry out to the Lord and admit, I am a sinful person. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And put your trust in the Lord Jesus and what He accomplished when He died on the cross and rose from the dead, that through His poverty, you can become spiritually rich. Others of us who've been believers, now's the time for us to do a check to say, Lord, have I forgotten the gospel? Have I forgotten the way your kingdom works? Am I, have I fallen over into spiritually middle-class thinking and living? Well, then help me to repent. Thank you for these great blessings in my life, but I don't depend upon my own self-righteousness, my own self-sufficiency, uh, my own uh, position or possessions any longer. No, 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 Lord. I trust in you and you alone by grace through faith that I may be saved that I might be in your kingdom, that I may walk with you. So make that adjustment. Draw near to Him. So Lord, thank You.
Thank you so much that you're such a good heavenly Father to us. And loved us so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And that your presence and your acceptance and your forgiveness and your approval through faith and alone in you is all that we need for everlasting joy. Thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword Dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcasts, video, and more.